welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. Well, good morning. Uh, Kids are dismissed with Miss Whitney in the back. K through second only. Them's the rules. The, the big sign on the back helped me. Very proud of myself. Uh, I'm Pastor Jeremy Bass. Great to be with you all here today. Uh, the main pastor of the Vine Service. And uh, I know I updated you all, I think, a few months ago or a few weeks ago, last time I was preaching, um, about upcoming ordination interviews. So I had that this past Monday afternoon in Conroe, and the Board of Ordained Ministry has recommended me for ordination this upcoming annual conference. So that's very exciting for me. Uh, It was a decade-long process, which was too long, one could argue, Uh, but it doesn't matter. It's all done. So that'll be May 31st in downtown Houston at Hilton, uh, the Hilton Ballroom, which also, fun fact, my dad's an ordained minister, and he got ordained elder 30 years ago uh, at this annual conference. So he's going into his 30th year of ministry as I go into my first year as an elder. So it's very cool, very exciting. Uh, looking forward to doing that in May. Also, just quick, if you didn't pay attention to the announcements, because I know you all uh, are riveted to every single announcement video that we have playing in the service. Uh, next week, the Vine, this service that you are in, will be at Town Center next week. So if you come here expecting to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, you're going to have to go over to the sanctuary to do that because we're going to be down at Town Center, which is where Chachi's is. So if you don't know where Chachi's is, it's, uh, I don't know, we all have phones, we can Google it, you can Google it. Town Center, that's where we're going to be at 7.30 and 10. Those services will be identical. So just come to whichever you want. Oh, also, if y'all, when you get there, could you like sit up closer to the front? Last Easter I did it and there was like a huge, I don't know, it felt like a hundred foot yard gap between me and the first row. So it would mean a lot to me if you would show me love and affection by sitting closer to the front. That would be great. Uh, So today is Palm Sunday, uh, Passion Sunday, the the beginning of Holy Week, the beginning of this journey to the cross and ultimately the journey to the empty tomb. The triumphant entry into Jerusalem, as we read earlier from John's Gospel, where Jesus is greeted like a conquering hero coming into Jerusalem, where Jesus is greeted with shouts of Hosanna and waving of palm branches and cloaks are thrown at the feet of Jesus. In those days when palm branches were laid down on the ground, when a conquering general or a conquering king went and vanquished the enemy, he would come back to his home city and they would have a big parade, a big festival to celebrate all the great works the king had done, and they would lay down palm branches as a sign of the victory. Or if a general or a king had gone and reconquered or reclaimed a city that was taken by enemies, the the townspeople would greet and welcome the liberator with palm branches by laying them down at their feet. And so Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, drawing up those imagery of a conquering king or a conquering hero. In fact, the text says, blessed is the king of Israel, the crowds shout to Jesus. 
And Jesus riding in on a donkey is also reminiscent of King David. Uh, When King David was about to die and pass on his successor to his son, he chose Solomon. And on Solomon's coronation, he put Solomon on a donkey. And he rode Solomon through Jerusalem saying, this is the new king of Israel. So Jesus riding on a donkey, all these palm branches being waved about. It's a a king coming in triumph and victory and conquering. We see that the people had one idea of what triumph and conquering looks like. And then Jesus had a very different understanding of what it meant to triumph this week. The crowds welcomed Jesus because they saw him as the Messiah who has come to conquer their political enemies. They saw the Messiah as the one who has come to overthrow Rome, to get rid of the oppressor, to get rid of these evil Romans who are conquering us, that this is what they thought the Messiah would do to come and throw off the shackles of Roman oppression. And so they shouted with acclamation. They had in mind these visions of these conquering generals, these war heroes coming and vanquishing their enemies. But the triumph of Jesus is not to conquer Rome, but to conquer sin and death. That the triumph of Jesus doesn't lead to a throne in the palace, but it leads to a cross on the hill. The triumph of Jesus is not accomplished via political power or a strong arming exertion of the will, but it comes by surrendering his life and choosing death and death on the cross. So often I feel like we're too much like the crowds, where we want Jesus to be this great political king this great political ruler who's going to come and sort of exert his will on society, exert his strong arm over society, or even we look to political power and we look to political and worldly leaders and we say that is the means by which the kingdom of God is going to come, just like these Jews did on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. And if we set our hope in politics, if we set our hope in a political party, our ultimate hope, then we are choosing to do things the way of the world rather than choosing the way of Christ, who conquers and triumphs, not through political power, but through suffering and death, and choosing crucifixion and the cross. Because no amount of political power, political uh, authority will save us the cross of Christ that saves us. A few years ago, Andy Stanley gave the sermon about this, and I loved what he said. He said, the only reason that we know who Pontius Pilate is, the only reason we know Pontius Pilate is because we know the story of Jesus. The only reason we know a lot of Roman emperors is because of how they get wrapped up in the story of Jesus. That Pontius Pilate was the most powerful political ruler in Judea at that time. And yet, if it wasn't for the fact that he was wrapped up in the story of Jesus, he would be a forgotten political powerful figure. Because the Roman Empire doesn't exist anymore, does it? 
Persian Empire doesn't exist anymore. These empires rise and fall, but yet the church of Jesus Christ is still here 2,000 years later. What are we setting our hope on? What type of power are we looking for? That the triumph of Christ doesn't come through what the crowd wanted him to do. It came through suffering and death on a cross. That Jesus conquers via the cross. It's interesting that, uh, you know, the Gospels are biographies of Jesus, but they're biographies of selected moments in Jesus' life. In fact, most of the Gospels spend a ton of time on this last week of Jesus' life. John's Gospel, which is where we're going to be in today, uh, spends half the book just talking about this last week of Jesus' life, this last time, this holy week Because this is the climax of his ministry, that all of his miracles, all of his works, all of his teachings, they lead not to sitting in an earthly throne, but sitting and hanging on a cross to conquer sin and death. In between the the triumphant entry and the crucifixion, we have Jesus giving his disciples a lot of teaching in John's gospel. In fact, in John chapter 17, we see Jesus gives a very long prayer I think it's the longest prayer that Jesus prays, and he prays it over his disciples and then over us by extension as well. That Jesus takes time right before his suffering and death to pray for those whom he loves. The prayer that Jesus prays over his disciples can be summed up in this. Lord, make these people like you and me are. Lord, make them intimate with one another like we are intimate. Lord, make them united like we are united. Lord, restore all the broken things in their life. John 17, starting in verse 20. This is the prayer that Jesus prays. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me and that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. This prayer that Jesus makes literally right before the garden, this is in the upper room and the institution of communion of the Lord's Supper can be summed up in this. Lord, I pray that they may be brought into this intimacy that we share. In other words, he's praying that what's broken about humanity might be restored once again. And Jesus himself answers his own prayer. Because Jesus is the way that that communion is restored. That the cross of Christ is the glory of God, the answer to Jesus' prayer, the way through which we are saved is the sacrifice that Jesus makes for us. The one who is willing to lay down his life for us. John chapter 18, right after this prayer, it says this. 
Then he had finished praying. Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell on the ground. That Jesus says here, I am he. It's echoing Exodus when Moses meets God for the first time in the burning bush and the Lord's, or Moses says to the Lord, what is your name? And says, I am who I am. In Exodus. And then Jesus says here, I am he. It's echoing that Jesus is laying claim to divinity. And notice that what Jesus says, that the power of those claims to divinity it carries with it such authority that it makes those who came to arrest him step back and fall down to the ground before him. That John's gospel portrays Jesus as a man with immense power and authority. And he can easily evade this if he, want, if he wanted to. But instead, we see that Jesus chose to lay down his life for our sake. That Jesus could have been like a conquering hero or a conquering general, charging into Jerusalem with power. But Jesus chooses victory not to come through that way. God chose victory not to come through that way, but rather it comes through the cross. It comes through the cross. That Jesus is in full control and he willingly submits to suffering and death for our sake. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first... We would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. I love to do this. Uh, I don't know if I did this last year, but I love to read the passion narrative uh, on Palm Sunday. So, we're going to be reading John 19. It's going to be a long, long passage. So, I would encourage you to take up a posture of prayer. Uh, you can either close your eyes and picture it, but I would just encourage you to just hear the words of Scripture as we read the account of Jesus' crucifixion. Hear the word of the Lord. And then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. 
As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis to charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside to the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are not a friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. But Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. And with the undergarments remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened so that the scriptures might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had been finished, And so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, and they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he finished, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to reread that last part. Later, 
Knowing that everything had now been finished and that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And he took a jar of wine, jar of wine vinegar was there, and they soaked a sponge in it, put it on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That the last words of Jesus in John's gospel, It is finished, is a cry a victory. That Jesus on the cross gives a victory shout, it is finished. That the triumph of Christ is on the cross. What is it that Jesus finished? I think uh, it tells us in Paul's letter to the Colossians. It says this in Colossians 2, 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us of all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We see that in the cross of Christ, in the cross of Jesus, that Jesus has set us free from the power of sin and demonic forces. That in the cross of Christ, Jesus has set us free from the power of sin and demonic forces. That it is finished, that Jesus' victory cry on the cross means that the power of sin is broken in our lives. That sin no longer has to reign and rule over us. John Wesley talked about how too often we are quick to accept the necessity of sin in our lives. And John Wesley says, but according to the cross of Jesus, we don't have to let sin reign in us anymore. That the power of the cross, the triumph of the cross, the triumph of Christ means sin no longer has reign and rule over us. And Jesus takes the powers and authorities of this world, the powers and authorities of demonic forces, and disarms them and makes them a public spectacle by the cross. That in his suffering and death, he descends down into hell itself and brings light into the very bowels of hell and brings light to the place where death reigns eternal. One of the early church fathers, he used this analogy to describe this work of Christ on the cross. He said it was like Satan uh, grabbed a bait on a hook. Gregory of Nyssa writes this, the deity was hidden under the veil of our human nature so that as with the ravenous fish, the hook of the deity might be gulped down along with the bait of the flesh. And thus, life being introduced into the house of death and light shining in darkness, that which is diametrically opposed to light and life might vanish. That in the death of Jesus, he goes to hell and rises again like a conquering hero. That the triumph of Christ into Jerusalem is a triumph to go into the dark places of hell and go into the dark places of our life to bring freedom and restoration and wholeness. That Satan would not have been so transfixed on the hook of the deity had it not been for Satan's inordinate desire to corrupt all of human flesh. 
And so Jesus on the cross makes a public spectacle of these powers. In those days when you would conquer an enemy, you would take them and capture them and you would strip them of their armor and of their weapons and of their clothes. And when the king would parade through the city or the general would parade through the city, you would have all these POWs behind you as a public spectacle. Look of who I have conquered. And the general would be riding in a chariot ahead of these conquered enemies. And Jesus takes the cross, which is an instrument of death and suffering and defeat, but to Christ it is the very chariot of victory over sin, death, demons, and the powers of this world. And he rides it through the world victoriously. And what this means for our lives, friends, is that sin no longer reigns in your life. That the shout of Jesus is a shout of victory. That you don't have to be in bondage to sin anymore. Porn addiction. You are free in Christ. Alcoholism. You are free in Christ. Anger issues. You are free in Christ. Self-hate. You are free in Christ. Any bondage of sin that you have can be broken because Jesus has conquered every single enemy. And made them a spectacle on the cross. That's why we do this thing called church. That's why we gather here and proclaim every single Sunday. Because we believe that our God is a God of transformation. And he's a transformation because he submitted himself to death on a cross. And took all of our sin upon himself. And rises again like a conquering hero. That the blood of Jesus can conquer any sin in our life. That bondage no longer reigns over us. Charles Wesley in his hymn, O Four Thousand Tongues of Seeing, says he breaks the power of canceled sin. <coughs> he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. That Christ on the cross, he conquers and no longer will sin rule and reign over the life of a believer anymore. And sometimes this happens over time. Sometimes it can happen in an instant. But I believe, friends, that you do not have to let sin rule and reign in your life. That those bondages of sin which cause you great shame are broken because of what Christ does on the cross. Not only is the power of sin broken in your life, but the cross of Christ means that you are forgiven. The cross of Christ means that you are forgiven. This prayer, going back to that prayer of Jesus in John 17, Father, I pray that they may be one as we are one. It's this prayer for this restoration of intimacy that was lost in the fall in the garden. But sin gets in the way of that. Sin gets in the way of between us and God. And Jesus, because God is a God of justice, and can't just simply just wipe things away, but there has to be justice. And through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that justice is met. And that we are forgiven because Christ takes all of that on himself. That the way of forgiveness of sin in our lives is through the cross of Jesus. His perfect sacrifice for us. It says in the scripture in John's gospel that there is a hyssop plant. And I love John's parallel 
here is that there's this hyssop plant and they take the sponge and they lift it up to Jesus' mouth and he drinks from the sponge that's been stuck with the hyssop plant. In scripture, in the Old Testament, the hyssop plant was one of the ways through which cleansing happened. In Leviticus, one of the laws is they would take the hyssop plant and they would dip it in blood and they would sprinkle it on the leper after they had been cleaned. And in the Exodus itself, they took hyssop plants, dipped it in the blood of the lamb and wiped their doorframe with it. In the Psalm of David, he says, Lord, cleanse me with hyssop. That hyssop is a means of cleansing in the old covenant. And so Jesus with this parallel here on the cross, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the means by which you are cleansed and forgiven and the sins that you have in your life and the bondages of sin and those things that cause you great shame do not reign and rule over you and they are forgotten and cast down to the pit. That the blood of Jesus means that we are forgiven, freed, and cleansed to be in relationship with God. That your past is not held against you. (coughs) Excuse me. I want to invite the band back up and the communion stewards. I love how it says here in Colossians. Colossians 2.14. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal debt, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Cyril of Jerusalem, another church father, says this, your accumulated offenses do not surpass the multitude of God's mercies. Your wounds do not surpass the great physician's skill. Friends, I don't know where you are in your journey of faith, whether you've never given your life to Christ or whether you've been a Christian your whole life. But I know that we always need to hear that message of you are forgiven. We always need to hear that message of freedom. And so as we now do Holy Communion, as we now remember the sacrifice and we partake in this means of grace, uh, on the screen there's going to be some response questions. And before you come up and receive communion, just take some time in your seat to reflect on these questions. Where do you need freedom in your life? What do you need forgiveness from? Whenever I do healing prayer with people, what I do is I say, I want you to imagine you sitting at the foot of the cross with Jesus right now. I want you to take that thing, that struggle, that issue, that heartache that you're going through, and I want you to give it over to Jesus at the cross and watch what he does with it. So friends, I want you to do that in your prayer. Take that thing, take that issue, and just give it to the cross of Christ where you can find freedom and wholeness and restoration and forgiveness because we serve a God who has conquered the very bowels of hell itself. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. And then when the supper was over, he took the cup He gave thanks to you, Father, and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. 
And so, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and juice. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by your love. Lord, you have bought us, you have restored us, you have redeemed us, you have proclaimed freedom for us when we were captives. You proclaim forgiveness over us. You sing songs of freedom over us. So, Lord, let that be what reigns and rules in our hearts and lives and our identity. Lord, pour out signs and wonders in our midst. Lord, set people free today. Set people free from bondages. Set people free from addictions. Set people free from these hateful thoughts they have about themselves. And give them your truth that we are loved, we are forgiven, and we are free. As we pray the prayer that your son taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.